The one good thing, the one good thing I did, I remember, he did write some good songs. He wrote some very pretty songs. Yeah. I gotta tell you that. And you like when music is pretty, don't you? I love pretty music, yeah. friends happy new year this is wyatt i'm here with my buddy jason as always hey friends and you're listening to the sail on podcast everything about brian wilson and beach boys that you could ever hope for so it's a new year we're going to keep rolling with these episodes today we're going to play you some voicemails that we've gotten over the past few weeks we're going to start off with a voicemail from our friend kurt baker Hey, brothers, how you feel? It's Kurt Collin, and I just want to say I'm loving the podcast. I've been listening to it a lot lately. I'm on. I'm currently on episode four, almost on the fifth. Just been, you know, it's a great, great podcast to listen while I'm walking through the streets of Madrid and walking my dog. And that's actually what I'm doing right now. But, hey, I, uh, I just wanted to mention something because I was listening to the Gary Usher episode. I really dug that one a lot. Uh, and I also dug that, you know, Jason mentioned that some of those records were kind of proto-punk, and that's so true, uh, especially the, the rip chords, the Hey Little Cobra album's got a couple of real, you know, raunchy tracks on it. It's, kinda, it's super proto-punk. So that's really cool that you mentioned that, Jason. But uh, one of the songs that, that was so cool that came out of that time period uh, with, you know, uh, Gary Usher and, and Bruce and Terry were, was actually a song that was, was on a compilation that came out not recently, but a while ago by Bruce and Terry. And a lot of times we, we, as Beach Boys fans, we often talk about the collaborations of, of Brian Wilson. But actually, Mike Love wrote a really, really great song with, with Bruce Johnson called Don't Run Away. And that song has kind of got, it's got a vibe almost of All I Want to Do, which would be released on Sunflower, kind of like seven years later or something. But it's it's a really nice track that that came out of that kind of blooming beach stuff. So it's a really good song. I'm sure you guys heard it. And I just wanted to say hi. Love the podcast. And keep on rocking. I'm patiently waiting for uh, for the Love You episode. Don't skip out on it. I want a track by track. All right. Love you guys. Bye. Love the voicemail, Kurt. As always, great to hear from you. Pretty rad how you picked up on uh, Bruce and Terry's Don't Run Away. One of my favorites. I think it's one of Wyatt's favorites, too. Looking
great that you pointed out that Mike Love was involved in that, and I kind of had forgotten that. I think I knew that a long time ago, but in my mind it just stuck out as kind of a Terry Melcher, Bruce Johnston thing, but it makes total sense to connect the dots between Mike, Bruce, and that song as related to All I Want to Do, which you also brought up. So great insight. Thanks for the reminder, and thanks for bringing up two of my favorite songs. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. And of course, we are looking forward to the Love You album episode that we'll get to eventually here. Probably, uh, well, maybe this year. I don't know. We'll see how the episodes go. But um, yeah, you'll definitely get, get a spot on that one because if you guys didn't know, Kurt is a good friend of mine. I used to play music with him. And uh, he was the one that turned me on to Love You and made me give it a second chance years ago and uh, it really blew my mind when I when I opened it up to love you and everything that love you is so yeah thanks Kurt for that and we'll talk to you soon I'm sure up next we have a message from Mitch Stewart in Nova Scotia hey fellas uh, Mitch Stewart calling from Nova Scotia Canada love the new podcast uh, keep it up I uh, just wanted to touch base with you guys and uh, just uh, tell you where I came from I came to be a a disciple of the Beach Boys at uh, age of seven, uh, back around 81, uh, by way of my mother inexplicably bringing home from Kmart a budget copy of what was Shut Down Volume 2. I was actually titled Fun, Fun, Fun with two less songs on it. Didn't have that uh, in the parking lot or Cassius Love and a Sonny Wilson thing. Um, now, she was a teenager when they first hit the scene, probably liked them as casually as any casual fan could. Don't know why she bought it, because she never really listened to it herself after. Uh, but I was hooked, and shortly after that, I picked up a copy of the 64 concert LP with some allowance money. Fast forward to high school. Um, in 1990, when the twofer remasters came out, I bought them on cassette. And uh, then on CD a few years later, um, along with every other compilation, bootleg, and boxes I could get my hands on poured through each track with a fine-tooth comb, like I expect a lot of you did. Learned as many harmony parts on my own as I could. I remember I had a little four-track cassette port of studio, tried to recreate as much of the sound as I could, stretching that machine to the limit, of course, because it was four tracks. Um, Well before I started listening to the podcast, I was a fan of the Explorers Club. Um, Since the first album, in fact. Heard about that one through that website where that fellow writes all the Beach Boys reviews and sometimes hilarious. And I'm sure if you've read the review of Looking Back with Love or Summer in Paradise, you know what I'm talking about. Um, which brings me kind of to what I think would be a good topic of discussion sometime later on um, because Summer in Paradise is such a wretched piece of work with maybe the exception of uh, a couple tunes. I'll, I'll give... The song, Summer in Paradise, I admit I kind of like it. Um, But I think what might be interesting to talk about is the Wilson-Paley collaboration that occurred in the early to mid-90s and after. Now we're talking. Where Don Waz was going to do a supposed Beach Boys album. I think that would have actually vindicated a lot of the bad taste in people's mouths that the previous work had left. There's limited information online about that, but I think it would be a good uh, thing to discuss. What could have been, because one thing that intrigued me was the cut on the last um, 
you know, greatest hits box set called She's a Mystery to Me. I wake up wondering when I might see you again And every day case I just wanted to let you know keep up the good work and uh, you know feature this on the program if you want to fill some time keep up the good work keep those love and good vibrations happening with you bye bye thank you for the voicemail Mitch love your enthusiasm for the podcast and your stories about how you came to discover the love of the Beach Boys always great to hear that from our fans totally dig that you brought up the Paley collaborations from the 90s around the experimenting and getting in with uh, Don was but it kind of fell apart which I'm sure we'll touch more on that way on down the road but uh, yeah I dig those couple of tunes I've heard from those sessions and uh, Andy's actually a good friend of mine and he played me some demos from around that time which would probably blow everybody's mind but that's another story for another day yeah way to tease everybody there Jason hey gotta do it sometimes <laughs> we're gonna get into summer in paradise you know that's gonna happen at, at one point and uh, I do have like you know there's there's moments on that album where it not for the terrible you know early 90s production that would be pretty decent but um, that album is almost universally panned as the worst so but it'll be fun to get into it Thanks for the voice message, Mitch. Appreciate it. All right, up next, another voicemail from our friend Justin Plank. Hey, guys, it's Justin Plank once again. How I got into the Beach Boys? Well, as my dad had this old 1948 Dodge truck he picked up. He had an A-track player in it, and I grew up in the late 80s, 90s, and, you know, to me, I thought that was awesome. And he had the best of the Beach Boys 8-track, which I still possess today. And it's the best of comp that came out after Pat Sounds didn't do so well. The one with Louie Louie and Catch a Wave and whatnot. And I still love that as a compilation. I know a lot of people give a lot of grief about their cover of Louie Louie. I love Mike's uh, bass vocals for that. Um, but anyway, I had that. And my brothers also purchased Bill Cruisin' on cassette. And so I knew those songs not from any of the soundtracks. I didn't know any of those movies. I didn't see Lethal Weapon 2 until probably two years ago, or ten years ago. But I knew Still Cruisin' and In My Car and Kokomo and uh, Wipeout. And so I absolutely loved that cassette as well. Was really confused with the old songs being on there, but who wasn't if you're at that age? So anyway... I, that was kind of in the background. I liked them, but I wasn't obsessive as I, as obsessed as I am now. So I saw the first 
showing of the Beach Boys and American Family on ABC in 2000. And I was kind of going through a rut of that period. And it just totally, totally flipped me out. And I just, somehow it just sparked something in, in me. The, the interest level just went so high. I had to instantly go out. I went and got Good Vibrations Volume 2, uh, the, the greatest hits. It starts with uh, In My Room and ends with Cotton Fields. Absolutely loved it. Uh, and from there on, I was obsessed getting stuff for Christmas and uh, birthdays from Amazon. And uh, I was hooked from there. So keep going, you guys. Love hearing it. I guess we'll hear Surfing USA album next week. Sounds good. See ya. Hey, Justin, thanks for all the great insight, of course, as always, with your voicemails. And uh, I just have one thing to ask. You need to call back and let me know what Beach Boys stuff you got for Christmas from Amazon, like you say you're obsessed with. So I, I gotta know. You'll know what you'll. <clears throat> you probably have some insight on some new release stuff out there, bootlegs and such that I have no clue about. So let us know. Yeah, thanks for calling, man. I, I also wanted to mention that I really enjoyed the ABC American Family Beach Boys miniseries back in 2000. I was 19 years old at the time, and I recorded every episode on VHS tape and watched it over and over again because at the time it was the only thing I had outside of, I think I had the Imagination VHS as well, like the little short live show that he did, that Brian did in 1998. But uh, I really loved it. And, you know, it's got it's got some cheesy moments and some historical inaccuracies as always but uh, i thought it was really cool and it really you know heightened my obsession with the band so i can relate up next we have a voicemail from mike in rhode island hi my name is mike and i'm calling with regard to the sale on podcast i'm looking forward to seeing you guys um on may 24th in Winsocket, rhode island i got into the beach boys back in the early 60s, when a station, a local AM radio station, 6.30 AM, played the top 40. At that time, the genre was the top 40 on AM radio, and they were known as WPRO, the station that reaches the beaches. I became consciously aware of the Beach Boys at a young age. My cousin went to college, left some Beach Boy albums behind. I listened to those intently every day after school on a big Motorola hi-fi system with a Vibronic tank. It actually had a reverb tank on the stereo system. And I became close friends with some of the band members. So I'm looking forward to seeing you guys. We'll see you in Winsocket, Rhode Island in May. Bye. Thanks for the voicemail. We look forward to seeing you in May as well. So looking forward to meeting you at the Ceylon Beach Boys Tribute Band gig. Um, that's really wild about the stereo with the yeah. reverb tank in it. I've got to understand why they decided that would be a good thing. I'd love to hear that, actually. That's pretty intriguing. It'd be cool to even see if you could take whatever it was inside the stereo and build like your own guitar reverb tank with the components. That'd be pretty rad. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was just, you know, kind of a fad at the time. And it was like, you know, it was the coolest sound to have on a record. And I think for playing some older records... It must have been fun to just put the reverb on it and see what it would have sounded like. So, um, probably just part of that whole reverb craze in the early 60s. Much to the chagrin of mastering engineers everywhere. Of course. Up next, we have one more voicemail. This is from Fletch in Maine. Hey, what's up, guys? 
This is Fletch in Maine. I'm looking forward to you guys coming up and doing that Salvation Army gig, and I hope that all works out, and I can come see you guys rock and roll. Uh, but anyway, loving the podcast. I'm about to crack into episode number five right now. I am very excited that in the little preview here it says there may even be another Beach Boys conspiracy. <laughs> this is great stuff, you guys. Uh, no, in all honesty, though, I've been a fan ever since I was a little kid, man. I bought a all summer long on eight-track cassette in the basement thrift shop of some church in South Berwick, Maine, and it was on from there on out. Uh, my parents liked country music and Elvis. They didn't introduce me to the Beach Boys. I introduced myself. Uh, I grew up in a church where, you know, you weren't really supposed to listen to rock and roll, so that's how I found it. Thrift shops, yard sales, stuff like that. Uh, I've seen the band many, many times in many shapes and forms. I've met Brian Wilson twice. That's a story for another time. Um... Me and Bruce had a thing one time. That's pretty funny. I'll tell you that story sometime. Uh, but just keep up the good work, you guys. It's killer. Uh, I look forward to many, many more of these. If you're going to go through album by album, we're going to be here a while. So <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks. Fletch, thanks for the voicemail. Super excellent that you were able to discover the Beach Boys on your own through the thrift shops and the various forums. I discovered a lot of music myself that way, a lot of weird 50s, 60s, and 70s random stuff by just kind of going through the tape bins and CD bins and record bins at the thrift stores and gas stations everywhere. So I definitely feel a kinship to your musical discovery. So excellent and hope to catch you in Maine when we're up there. Yeah, thanks, Sean. We'll definitely look forward to seeing you and talking about some Beach Boys uh, conspiracies when we get up to Maine. And uh, yeah, we are going to keep doing this as long as people are listening. So we're going to be in for the long haul. Going to do every album and um, in between the albums, do little um, extra episodes about whatever we feel is interesting and that we want to talk about. So that brings us to this week, the Patriarch of the Beach Boys, their father, the Wilson's father, Murray Wilson. A lot of you may know a little bit of Murray's story. He spent most of his life working as a foreman in Southern California and actually lost an eye in an industrial accident. Had three kids, of course, Brian, Dennis, and Carl, with his wife, Audrey, and as children, the, the Wilson brothers had a tough relationship with their father. A lot of the, a lot of the punishments would come down on Brian being the oldest. And um, he actually blames his father for losing his hearing in his right ear. Every couple of months you get mad about something, you go, get in the bathroom, get in the bathroom. And I go, wham, wham. And he used to beat me in the ass, you know, and it really, really, really hurt my feelings. Did you live in fear of your father? Yeah. Brian once noted that his father would tie him to a tree or beat him with a two by four, and maybe the worst of all punishments, pulling out his false eye and forcing the boys to stare at his empty eye socket as a way of kind of horrifying them and intimidating them. Jeez, horrible. It's pretty messed up. You know, as you as you you know learn more about Brian and all the you know psychosis that 
he developed, it's um, it's not surprising that he had such a tough time with his own father and um, really was never able to totally please his father. But, um, you know, the musical contributions that Murray made were pretty substantial. He was a musician himself. He was a songwriter, and um, he had one small hit in the early 1950s called Two Step Sidestep. We're doing that two step sidestep, then a whirl away, two step sidestep, took a man away, two step sidestep. What a gloomy day from that two step Saturday night. We're doing that new step, two step sidestep, I learned it yet. All set for Saturday night. There was a girl at the dance last night who was sitting pretty and things were bright. She had a style that seemed just right with the two-step sidestep all of the night. We're doing that two-step sidestep, then whirl away two-step sidestep, took her man away two-step And the song was featured on Lawrence Welk's show, and that was pretty much the peak of his songwriting success. Brian was quoted saying, My father had talent. He sure did. He was a talented man. He had some music in him. Murray founded a machining business in the 1950s, but he kept working on music, and he always wanted to be in the music business. He actually met um, Height and Dorinda Morgan, who were very instrumental in the Beach Boys' career, starting them off and you know being their first publishers and producers. So that was huge. I think he kind of knew he wasn't going to necessarily have the success he needed as a songwriter, but it was definitely his passion. His work was not his passion. I feel like his businesses he did because he could and sh- and should have done it. And then, you know, but, you know, there's lots of stuff out there how when he'd be brooding and come home all, you know, frazzled as he were, that it would just take Audrey or Brian or the boys singing or whatever just to completely change his mood and calm him down when he went into a rage. It was almost like a mystical thing took him over when he got into the music. So it was the biggest part of his life was his music for sure. So after the Beach Boys formed, Murray kind of self-proclaimed himself their manager and producer and publisher. He kind of ran the show for the first couple years. And um, he was very manipulative with everyone they worked with, including, um, as you may have heard, Gary Usher and Roger Christian and and Nick Vinay, who was their um, in-house producer at Capitol Records. You know, Nick Vinay is quoted as saying, "Uh, I used to get locked up in the office with the man. I was into all kinds of great things with Les McCann and Lou Rawls, and the next morning I would have to come into work at 9 o'clock after being up all night with great music and walk into that office, and there would be Murray Wilson, and that motherfucker would sit there till 5 or 6 o'clock and tell me about his songs and play me his melodies, and I'd have to listen to him because somewhere in the conversation he would always drop in what Brian's next record was going to look like. Everyone in the building avoided him, but I was stuck with him because I was the producer. I used to hide under my desk. He used to look in my office to see if I was there, so I ordered a new desk because it had a front on it. The chick downstairs would buzz me. Man, here he comes. I would tuck myself under my desk because there was no exit but the front door. And he would come in, wouldn't take the secretaries, he's not in, would look under the desk for five hours. (laughs) It's just horrifying. I mean, Murray was definitely a very um, overbearing and demeaning guy. And, you know, part of that... um, 
contributed to the Beach Boys' success, but for the most part, everybody that they worked with just hated Murray, and it probably turned them off of working with the Beach Boys. Like, a lot of people that probably wanted to work with them were turned away because Murray was so overbearing. Yeah, I mean, I kind of... I'm sure he was terrible to work with and, and hard to deal with, but I, I'm i a little suspect on Vinay's extreme accounts there. I don't know if I buy all of it. Yeah. I'm sure... I'm sure that's just his exaggeration, as we've noted on other quotes from him that seem to be very askew. Right. Um, but, you know, I think you, you kind of mentioned it just now, but I think that I don't think the Beach Boys would have gotten their big start if it hadn't been for his tenacious nature. And I think and I know we've got some other information coming up that will kind of tie into that. But, uh, well, I think he, in a way, was trying to manipulate people as you said to get them to either work together or get what he wants i'm sure a lot of it was self-serving but also i think maybe he doesn't get enough credit for being able to kind of read people and figure out their weaknesses and and kind of go for that i know that's kind of a terrible thing but you know as a savvy business guy i understand why he did it yeah uh he was a good manipulator and he knew how to manipulate his sons for sure and yeah as a as a producer um he was pretty overbearing and and chuck britz their engineer realized that his ideas weren't necessarily the best for the band so he actually created a fake mixing board for the studio that uh murray could mess with and um chuck actually had the real controls so I thought that was always a funny story. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um as you know as David Marks said in one of our earlier episodes Murray was big on having the guitars really big in the mix and really high trebly really cutting through and that was actually a big part of their sound in the early days. So at one of their sessions and I believe it's the I get around session in early 1964 Brian and Mike fired murray as their producer it's a big moment in the band's history really is yeah so it kind of ended their business relationship with him so we think yeah at the time and he remained you know kind of close contact with them and he actually showed up at several of the recording sessions there's a an infamous recording session for help me Rhonda" on the today album where murray shows up drunk and is just trying his best to get his two cents in on how Al should sing the song, on how the boys were singing and how the song should sound. And it's just embarrassing to hear. Brian, you're coming in shrill. We're missing all of those. Help me run on Mike. We missed it all. Okay? You're doing great. Brian, you've got a wonderful tune here. I'm sorry to yell. Al, loosen up a little more. I'll say sexy Rhonda more. Rhonda more soft and sexy. Brian, have the guys loosen up. you got a beautiful tune here. Loosen up. You're so tight, fella. I can't believe it. I put you over to Here we go. Those are the words. <laughs> no, no, listen, syncopate a little. Oh. 
Uh, what are the words? I don't know. Sing it. Since you put me down, I've been out doing it in my head. I say, show him, show him how to do it just once, Dad. Let me sing it. Let me hear, sing it. Sing it. Since you put me down. No. Since you put me down. Go on. Go on that kick. Since you put me down. No. No. Since you put me down. No. no you're, you're, since you, since put, you put me down, baby. Don't sing with it. Let him sing it once. You want me to leave, Brian? No, I just wanted you to let him sing it. Mother and I can leave now. Here we go. Uh, duplicated like last time, huh? When you sing Rhonda, make it sexy and soft. Rhonda, you look so fine. Okay. It's, uh, it's really interesting historically to hear. And, um, you know, it's hard to really imagine Murray being so awful until you actually hear the tapes and the stuff that he said to them. And it's just kind of chilling because this is these guys' father and these guys are successful and they're doing everything they can to make their dad proud. And he's still just berating them and treating them like idiots. We can hear Dennis, but we can't heal Mike. We can't hear Mike and we can hardly heal hear Al. Okay, now wait a second. Me? Can we hear a chord? Just a chord like we used to. When you used to sing clear records, okay? Let's go. Brian, I'm a genius too. Let's go, huh? One, two, three. And around that time, looks like Murray wrote a letter to Brian that I guess the press or somebody got a hold of. And I want to read a little bit of that. Um, just try, I think it's just trying to make him, him and the rest of the guys feel guilty for firing him. But this is Murray's letter to Brian. This is a little excerpt from 1965. I cannot believe that such a beautiful young boy who was kind, loving, received good grades in school, and had so many versatile talents could become so obsessed to prove that he was better than his father. I can tell you. Although I am strong in many areas and consider myself fairly competent in not one area of music, but in countless other fields as well, that I have something between my ears besides vacant air, and I'm proud of the job I did with my sons as their manager and guiding force. Although I know I was wrong in my approach, what could I do when my own wife and Mrs. Marks and Mike Love and a bunch of other phonies that kept coming out of the walls would trick you all into thinking that I was a mean man. I think that it's a manipulative thing he's trying to do there. Obviously there's little nuggets of truth in that whole letter. I think the letters is a lot longer than that's online, but I think at the end of the day, he definitely was a tyrant, a terrible misjudgment of how to treat people. But I think at the end of the day, he really did love his boys and wanted them to be successful. And I know he wanted to be successful himself. So I do have some sympathy for the man, but it's hard to see through his terrible things to get to that place. But it's taken a long time for me and research and just stories I've read to kind of really get the full picture. And obviously, usually a lot of it slanted toward how terrible he was, but um, just some really interesting things we've dug up while we're researching this episode. Yeah, and it seems to me like, you know, his um, failures as a musician in his own right made it even more difficult when the Beach Boys pushed him away because his sons were finally getting the success that he wanted, and he was a part of that at the beginning, but he kind of ruined that for himself. And um, he also split up with his wife, Audrey, and they moved into separate houses, and uh, I think it was 
uh, downhill from there because they were all um, kind of living separately and they weren't really a family unit anymore. And um, you can really tell. I mean, like that was kind of when Brian started staying home and doing his own thing. And as much as um, as much as he cared about the rest of the group and his family, it all started to deteriorate at that point in my mind. Yeah. It didn't stop Murray from trying to make his own success in the music industry. He actually uh, found a young group and that Carl actually turned him on to, a group uh, led by Rick Hen called The Sunrays. Yeah. So another little pet project of his that was, you know, all things considered. Um, another Beach Boys copy band um, with a little more validity because of Murray's name. And uh, they didn't really have a lot of success, but they had some really cool songs. Their uh, biggest hit was a song called I Live for the Sun. I love that one. Great bridge. I remember hearing that for the first time on that Beach Boys American Family miniseries, the Jeff Foskett version that he recorded for that show, and I flipped. I loved it. (laughs) Great. I didn't realize that was Jeff Foskett until later. Um, I thought that was really cool. When our group, uh, Explorers Club, were making our first album, uh, Freedom Wind, my buddy Troy, who I co-wrote a bunch of tunes with, um, that best part of that song is they're obviously kind of mimicking the intro to little honda at the beginning when he says go right, right. before they start yep. singing which is just hilarious so i think we did we were i can't remember what song we were working on but before every vocal take um he would come over the talk back because he'd be in the control while i was doing the vocal he'd be engineering and i would record this is probably during demos but anyway he'd come over the talk back and just yell go imitating <laughs> i live for the sun because i think we listened to i live for the sun for like two days straight because we love yeah. the bridge so much in the whole tune but i could just remember him in the control room going go <laughs> So, <laughs> that's good so yeah uh just dorky story but that song's always been big time for me just because it's uh i don't know it's not i don't think it's as good as a brian wilson tune necessarily but it's a great fake beach boy song also in 1967 murray wilson released an album 
of mostly instrumental covers, but also some new originals called The Many Moods of Murray Wilson, which was kind of a adult lounge album that uh, has some really cool sounds and arrangements and um, has a couple of really interesting tunes on it. One that was written by Rick Hen called Islands in the Sky that I just really love and sticks out to me. Such a cool vibe. Yeah, it's awesome. And um, it's evocative to me of um, Let's Go Away for a While from Pet Sounds, which came out a year earlier. So I think there was definitely some influence from um, his sons on this record. And he also does a, um, a rendition of The Warmth of the Sun that's pretty interesting as well. I think with Brian and his dad, they definitely had some musical kinship. You know, you can hear it, especially in the later 60s Beach Boys stuff. You can hear kind of Brian's exotica leanings. And I'm sure he shared the love of that stuff with his dad. Um, It was pretty big in the culture period, but the style of Murray's playing and writing that Brian probably heard growing up kind of leaned toward that big band and some of the exotica stuff. So... Yeah, I think as much as Murray was influenced by Brian on this stuff, you know, he had an influence on Brian's kind of adult contemporary standards, exotica, etc. leanings, um, which has always been present in all Brian Wilson music from the very beginning. So that's really cool. Something that is still kind of a mystery to me, but uh, very interesting is... Murray's involvement with the Beach Boys album Friends in 1968. So good. We've known that he sung some vocals while Mike was in India, and he sung on the album on Be Here in the Morning. He sung the bass tracks. And um, on top of that, Carl Wilson was quoted saying about the Friends album, that was mostly Brian and my dad which is really interesting to hear. Um, And I couldn't find much else about it as far as what he meant by that quote. Um, Because it seems like he meant more than him just singing on one track. He said it was mostly Brian and our dad. So maybe Murray was around a little bit more than we know. We don't really have a lot of session tapes from that era. And, um, you know, maybe maybe we'll get more info this year as we reach the 50th anniversary of Friends. Um, I'm really looking forward Mm -hmm. to seeing if we get a 1968 box set of sessions, maybe have, um, please, please, please some new insight on the friends sessions or if, if they exist and maybe see if Murray is present and what else his contributions may be, if any, very interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Murray was, because Brian was definitely entering kind of a downtime at this time, and I wouldn't be surprised if Murray was hanging out with Brian a little more in some weird way at the sessions. Um, I think this is the first album they didn't work on with Chuck Britz, right? Right. It was yeah. uh, just Desper. Desper. 
And so I think we need to go ask Stephen Desper what Mary's involvement was. I think we're going to have to figure out how to get in touch with him. That'd be a really awesome question. Yeah, I would love to hear about that. Um, I do know that Murray was in the studio at times because Desper was quoted, you know, saying that he would, Desper usually stood where Murray liked to stand and Murray would stand behind him and dig his hand into his shoulder, (laughs) you know, when he wanted him to do something. Surge! Yeah, surge, surge. So, I mean, he was definitely around at times. Um, So, you know, maybe we'll uh, be able to talk more about that when we get to our friends episode later this year. I'm excited. Okay. So Rick Hen basically became the son Murray never had, it seems in terms of creative things. And from what I understand, I think, you know, Murray kind of definitely used some of his interesting techniques with the sun rays, but almost had a, because it wasn't his son, I think they had a little bit of a better relationship. So they worked together a lot and, seems Murray really believed in Rick's talents, which he is a really talented guy. If you've ever heard any of the Sunray stuff, he's a great singer. And he's he went on to do other stuff after that. Um, but I know, I think as a, maybe a favor to their dad, because they felt some kind of remorse for firing him. Somehow, you know, whenever Rick Hen would work with Brian or Dennis or Carl, it was kind of a favor to their dad. And they did work together on a few things. Um, I think Rick Hen and Brian co-wrote a great tune um, that I really like called Soulful Old Man Sunshine. She looks so fresh and sweet, keeps herself soft and tender. No wonder that I can sing a song about my baby. She looks so healthy, I feel so dark and wealthy. No wonder that I can sing a song about my It seems the production never got finished, but it does have some trademark Brian Wilson chords and vocal harmonies and a cool lead by Carl that was kind of unfinished and some big band leanings, which definitely come from Murray and Rick Hinn. Um, So that's one of my favorites that had some sort of Murray involvement. Another tune was kind of a, a song that ended up on a Sunrays compilation, but I kind of feel like, from what I've heard, it was a tune that Rick Hinn had wrote with Murray, and Dennis had done some arranging on the song, and they were trying to get it onto a Beach Boys record. This was during, same with Soulful Old Man Sunshine, this was around Sunflower right after 2020, Breakaway, which is a song we'll talk about in a minute, in that same time span. Yeah, I found a uh, a quote from uh, Rick Hen about that. 
It's from the liner notes of the three CD Vintage Rays set um, that, of course, are credited to Stephen McParland. The, the ever-present. <laughs> this guy just like, I mean, he just did everything, it seems like. Um, but it says, Murray wrote, Won't You Tell Me for the Beach Boys a few years after the Sunrays broke up and asked me if I would arrange it for him and cut a demo. After I finished working out the band and vocal arrangement, we booked a session for Sunset Sound in Hollywood. Just as we began cutting the tracks, who showed up but his son, Dennis Wilson? My immediate thought was, oh God, here we go. He's going to move in and start changing charts and this and that and make my life miserable. Quite to my surprise and relief, he was very gracious and simply said, gee, Rick, I love these chords. I like what you're doing with the bass line, but let me try something. Here's what he did. He had us re-record guitars and piano, rolling chords down one octave than usual with the tape machine at half speed. Then when we played it back at normal speed, it shot everything back up an octave and it gave a shimmering mandolin string bowed tremolo effect in the background. When Murray heard it, he went through the roof. He just loved it. it was, he was proud of what Dennis had done for the song. Then Dennis, Marty Giovanni, Don Rauch, and Ray Pullman and myself went, went in and did the backing vocals. The whole thing was a real celebration of love and friendship. Murray poured his heart out writing that song because at the time he was worried for his sons because they were having a real trouble getting a chart record. I remember Carl listening to it a couple of days later when we were mixing it down at Studio A at Gold Star, and he said, well, you've really got it for my dad. Good going, Rick. It may not have been a big hit song, but there was this really nice feeling surrounding that tune. Yeah, I, I heard that story. I guess I forgot all the intricacies of where Dennis came in. I just knew that he was part of it. That's a really awesome story. Um, and I, you know, I've heard, kind of reiterating what I said earlier, I think there's probably a lot of credibility to that story coming from Rick Hinn, of course. But I've also kind of heard that from maybe someone that was closer to the Wilsons or part of the family that a lot of the time when they would do those later sessions involving their dad, they were just still trying to be sons. They necessarily weren't looking at it from that professional angle, but that's pretty awesome. Um, and I knew about the half speed cause it says in the, the liner notes, um, Dennis doing sped up guitars. I think that made him shine and probably why Murray liked it. Cause he loved the treble as we talked about, I've done similar things just messing around before when I was younger with like my four track or whatever. And it definitely cuts through the mix a little harder when you do that kind of sped up stuff, kind of like on Beatles record. So pretty awesome. Yeah. From what I gather, um, Brian and Carl went in and resung this song later on a different date. Hmm, interesting. And um, they were maybe planning on using it as a Beach Boys song, maybe on Surf's Up, because um, it would have been 1970-ish. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure, but that it never surfaced, but it, it came out on a couple different bootlegs, and it's obviously Brian and Carl, and it's very rough, so it definitely wasn't meant for release. Yeah, but, it's kind um, of murky, too. Some of the words are real fumbled on, all, yep. on, on both versions. So I think maybe they were um, kind of just doing it as a favor for their dad or seeing if there was anything there yeah but um i maybe they just didn't like it or i think it's a really good song i think it's cool i'm i'm really glad that it 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 came out in some form and uh i wish that they had you know done a full studio version of it because it could have been awesome won't you tell me what you gave once before me 
said I think maybe where it lands to me is it sounds still maybe too 60s for the 70s you know yeah it sounds real like I said it to me it sounds it would have been a great ballad for the association like a follow-up or a b-side to never my love or something I mean it fits in that ballpark to me or even like the Vogues some of those great vocal groups of the late 60s that kind of brought back a sentimental vibe toward the end of the 60s to kind of counteract some of the counterculture rock oh yeah so it fits in the soft pop world for sure yeah fifth dimension or something like that <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah I, I think it's cool it's a really awesome uh, showcase of um you know supposedly uh murray wilson song that he wrote on his own uh maybe with a little help from rick Hen. So one of my all-time favorite Beach Boys recordings, hands down, is a tune that was not on any of the albums. It was their last single recorded for Capitol Records called Breakaway. And it was co-written by Brian Wilson and a gentleman named Reggie Dunbar, who just happens to be Murray Wilson. And we'd like to play for you now something which is our latest record, and it's called Breakaway. Yeah, my dad helped us on that one quite a bit. <laughs> he helped voice some of the parts. It was really funny because my dad gets all excited, you know, gets into it, to it so far that... He forgot your he name. He starts making all these yeah. faces and waving his arms, and everybody starts laughing. Well, anyway, he was really that's into the record. Groove. Yeah. Let's go. It sounds great. It's
probably a ton I could say about this tune, and I think at a later time we'll probably get a lot heavier into the history of this song. But, man, there's a couple of versions that were done, different mixes. It's a great tune. One of my favorite things about it is in one verse, you've kind of got the, the, I think it's not in a verse, it's in the chorus where the harmonies are at kind of a normal timbre. And then in the next chorus, time around they shift them down to a different voicings of a much lower voicing and I've heard that Murray sings on this I'm pretty sure that's true Um, but Breakaway should have been a smash everyone who's heard it who knows it um, it just becomes one of their favorite Beach Boy tunes instantly I remember when I heard it um, back when I was in either high school or early college years and it just knocked me out I was like ah this is like just the Beach Boys on all cylinders, great vocals, great arrangement, cool soft pop vibe to it with a little Latin feel in a way. Lots of changes. And then the ending, which Al Jardine always said Brian undersold. I think he meant the mix that eventually came out because there's lots of layers in there, but just one of Brian's magic endings. And it was him and his dad working together, which is pretty amazing. Um, just must have been a time of reconnection during this winding down of their capital contract. So, I don't know. I'm a huge fan of Breakaway. Could talk about it forever. Yeah, I think um, the first time I heard Breakaway was on the Good Vibrations box set. Yeah. Um, back in like the mid-90s, my dad got that uh, CD set. And uh, when I heard Breakaway, it kind of stuck out to me. Uh, I loved the arrangement of the vocals and the um, the kind of like modular sections of it um, were just always really interesting to me. And I love the lyrics, and I do think it's kind of, knowing what we know now, I think it's kind of um, fitting that it was kind of their last single for Capital as they were breaking away from their label obligation. Yeah, the lyrics totally allude to it. And yeah, I think it's also interesting that, that Murray had to use a pseudonym. It was either just him being playful or um, maybe it was a contractual thing to do with the publishing. And possibly, you know, I've heard that that Brian may have written the song himself, but just gave his dad a little nod. Um, so who knows? I mean, I think that's that's probably not likely but i do think that it's interesting that they used a pseudonym for for murray could have been that murray just made so many people mad in the music business that they wouldn't play it if they saw his name on it yeah exactly or capital didn't want him involved for sure so one thing i wanted to get to as we're closing out here is right before murray died he gave the beach boys official photographer ed roach a stash of cassette tapes to store and on these tapes, there was a fairy tale by Brian Wilson. And according to Roach, the recording features Wilson reciting a narrative about two young girls who get lost in the woods on their way to school. Wilson's daughters, Carney and Wendy, play the roles of the young girls over a cute musical track. Roach says that half a dozen other Brian songs remain in the stash that Murray gave him before passing away. Brian also reportedly wrote a song called Just an Imitation about his father in 74, but there's no tape of that. Um, I think it's really interesting that Murray 
had these tapes. And again, it kind of shows that even though they were had were at odds with each other so many different times throughout the Beach Boys career while Murray was around, I mean, Brian and his dad had a musical connection because he was, I know he was so proud of his son. So I feel like that was definitely something that it was interesting that he had these tapes of Brian and Brian probably confided in him and said, Hey dad, here's some more tapes of stuff I've done. We hang on to these. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I would love to hear more about that. And I'd love to hear those, um, lost tracks, the fairy tale, maybe, um, maybe we could ask Carney if she remembers that at all. She would be pretty young at the time, but yeah. very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yep. Um, so in 1973, at the age of 55, Murray had a heart attack and died in his home in California. And um, it hit Brian and Dennis especially very hard. Um, I know that Dennis um, kind of went further down his uh, alcoholism spiral after his dad died. And Brian um, was already kind of in a bad spot. And I think it um, pushed him even even further into his reclusiveness. Yeah, when uh, when the funeral went down, I know Carl was the only one there to go to the funeral with Audrey right. from the immediate family. Brian like escaped to New York with Diane. Yeah, I thought that people. was interesting too. Um, like Brian flew cross country with Diane, who um, at the time they were promoting. Um, shine away i think spring. right like the spring single um which is crazy but um yeah i mean just it, it's hard to say you know because we don't really have a lot from brian at that time about his dad but um a quote from brian in 2004 he said um that he was the one who got us going he didn't make us better artists or musicians but he gave us ambition I'm pleased he pushed us because it was such a relief to know there was someone as strong as my dad to keep things going. He used to spank us and it hurt too, but I loved him because he was a great musician. And uh, I know that Brian said at times um, that he really just wanted to impress his dad and his dad pushed him to write good songs and keep getting better. And he instilled that kind of competitive spirit in him. And his dad coming from you know a different time where it was really hard to... Um, make a living and especially like, you know, start your own business and, you know, live the American dream. He, uh, he had a drive um, that Brian didn't have on his own. And Murray really helped to push the band in the direction of success. And that's a definite plus for him. Yeah. The things we should be grateful for with Murray Wilson, aside from him being their father, in a crazy way, in a terrible way, he was their father. Not thankful for that part. But, you know, he definitely got them their deal with Capitol Records. I wholeheartedly believe that without his pushing, his pressing, and his endless promotion of his boys, that they would not have gotten that shot on arguably the most influential record label of that time. So, big props for that. Um, and it's interesting, you know... As much of a terrible time that his sons had with him, 
you know, Dennis spent tons of time with Murray. That's well documented that they would fight a lot when he was younger, but in their later days, in the last years, even after they let him go as the manager, Dennis spent tons of time, even like lived with his dad for a period when his parents separated. Um, I think Dennis needed his dad more than, you know, any writings kind of let on. Um, and I just know that, you know, they did have a musical kinship with their dad and he was proud of his boys, loved their music. And they always, all the way to the end, even as kind of may be evidence with Brian, given his dad, those tapes, they wanted his approval. They wanted to, you know, say, Hey dad, check out what we're doing. And I think any musician who has a pretty decent relationship or even not a decent relationship with their father, um, you know, that's just kind of present in all that they do musically. Um, so I can, I can relate to that. Um, you know, I think any musician can relate to their parents' influence on their music one way or the other, whether it be good or bad. So interesting stuff about Murray for sure. Yeah, man. Um, if you guys have any interesting Murray Wilson stories or have heard any cool, um, Murray Wilson productions or quotes that we haven't let us know. We're always eager to learn more, obviously. And um, quick uh, shout out to uh, everyone at the smileysmile.net message board, as well as the Pet Sounds forums. It's really been great having these resources to kind of dive into when we're looking up um, kind of rare material and looking for quotes on certain subjects. It's really nice to be able to search up those search for those quotes and songs and see where other people over the past few years have gone through these discussions and gone down these rabbit holes and kind of paved the way for us to do what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Um, shout out to everybody on those message boards and also, um, shout out to, uh, Andrew G. Doe and David Beard for compiling lots of info that we use every single week on, um, the Bellagio website and on endless summer quarterly. Thank you guys as well. And, and the thing I think we need to leave you all with is Murray Wilson and Rick hands lost KFC commercial. Yeah, this is a Jason find and, uh, it's, uh, well, it's just pretty special. I'll just put it that way. Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's chicken that's so great. Real finger licking, and no one can debate that all of the family will love it just like you. Kentucky Fried Chicken is waiting there for you. If you love your pussy, humans have theirs too. Go see the Colonel and buy a barrel it's the best fried chicken in the USA. Kentucky Fried Chicken is really here to stay. Kentucky Fried Chicken is really here to stay. Kentucky Fried Chicken is really here to stay. All right. Thanks again for listening, guys. Um, we're going to have a new episode next week all about the Surfer Girl album. Really excited about that one. As always, you can find us on the web at sailonsounds.com. Uh, if you don't know, we have a Beach Boys tribute called Sail On, and we're going on tour 
all year. We've got a lot of dates up on the website, so check that out. Send us an email at saleonpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 615-606-3887. And as always, thanks a lot to Will C. for providing our intro and outro music. He's got some awesome Beach Boys-related mashups on his website, willcmusic.com. Check him out. Until next time, sail on, sailors.